My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Today's Forgecast is coming at you thanks to the wonderful Rob at Weber Abrasives. So the next time you need abrasives or grinder belts for your workshop, give a visit to webers.net.au. Yeah, so what have you been up to this week, Alex? putting out more youtube videos than i have in the rest of the year combined <laughs> no kidding <laughs> no kidding although i have to admit i've watched the um the announcement for the 48 hour dagger challenge video like <sighs> six times i love it yeah i think it's a few great. people have <laughs> i love how i can just like message Niels and be like hey Niels, i need you to send me this and he's he doesn't he doesn't say like why <laughs> he's just like dude i'm on it and then, like a few minutes later, I get the thing, and I'm like, "I just mm-hmm. need you to recreate these photos." And I sent sent him those photos of me, and then he just sent them back. <laughs> yep. So it was fun. And um, what you don't see is that there was a whole team of contractors digging a pipeline um, just off camera, <laughs> watching me <laughs> do stupid <laughs> runs down the driveway and pulling cards out of the letterbox, and yeah. So, awesome, fun times, fun but BTS stuff. I actually filmed another video as well and thought, eh, I'll hold off putting it out so that <laughs> I space things out a bit more. Um, so stay tuned for another one. I'm still working on the solar one because the the courier's lost the last panels, and the next lot replacement lot that I've ordered, um, there has not been a tracking update in the last like eight days. So I'm hoping that they're here. Um, in the next few days so the latest expected date is monday so we'll see we will see and then i can continue with my solar up for uh workshop upgrade video um put out another raptor again which was ended up being the fastest knife sale i've ever done it was just under 10 minutes yeah right. um and been working on my latest fancy folder not as fancy as the last one but still nice I'm still trying to master the art of Mokimagane finishing. It is, it's so tricky and it changes entirely depending on uh, the alloys used. So it's. Um, and which planet is in retrograde and. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How the Mokimagane gods are f- favoring you. And um, I, I, like, I, I, I think I nailed it on the bolsters, but the blade and the clip look really flat. So I'm, mm. I'm trying to, it's just, yeah. I yeah, know I really the love same the, alloy, but. I really love the texture you got on the bolsters. Like it, yeah. it looks really good. It's got some really nice texture to it. And it's so cold and humid at the moment that my, um, uh, patented Mokimagane etchant mix that I have devised was actually like I took the lid off and it started smoking. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I'm like, this is probably isn't good, but I couldn't take it outside because um, it does contain hydrochloric acid and it was mm-hmm. raining and you don't really want to put water in hydrochloric acid if you can help it. No, it just wet the waters down, yeah. Uh, it generates a lot of heat. Like a stupid amount of heat, and it was in a plastic container, so I don't, don't really wanted to <laughs> to 
didn't want to take chances with something that was smoking. So luckily I just uh, had some fans going and vented the shop and it worked out okay, but uh, fun times. Um, And I've also uh, got a 3D printer recently, so I've been uh, running that thing pretty much constantly, um, dialed it in really nicely now. And um, I'm actually, um, you guys can't see it, but Sam can. I've actually been printing uh, mold forms for the Mm. saw that I'm making. Um, So in in split in halves so that it can actually be created a green a green sand mold for it and um yeah it should be uh, a pretty cool addition to the shop i've been printing everything i can think of to be honest and even though i don't do miniature wargaming anymore i've even been i've been testing its calibration by printing miniatures um because they are so small and finely detailed that in order to be able to successfully pull off prints of them you need to have it pretty dialed in so um i'm happy with where it's at now so i can start using it for knife making or in this case sword making next up i'll be doing the the pommel but um i'm actually going to be casting this out of bronze that uh sam actually sent me yeah so i haven't cast bronze before but i um i always see other people work with it i'm always super envious that they're uh, working <laughs> with it. So I'm not sure. Did you send me aluminium bronze or is it copper-based bronze? Uh, aluminium. Uh, so I sent you the, the big, big bar one, the Snickers bra. bar. The big bar is brass. No, so, not the recent one. This is from ages ago. Oh, um, I think that was Nordic gold. No, you've that, that, you sent that too. You've also <laughs> sent me a... <laughs> I have oh, like okay, a okay. stash of yeah, ingots right. from Yeah, Snickers. no, that's, that's um, 15% bronze like tin bronze standard tin oh bronze. it is proper tin bronze yeah. cool because awesome. we, so we were talking about you making your own bronze and i mentioned that i had tin and so i made mm. a bunch of tin bronze and sent you some it's god um, i'm just forgetting how much shit i've forgotten <laughs> <laughs> yeah i now have casting equipment so yeah. it's um but up until recently i did not sam's got yeah. casting equipment i have not so i'm i'm now set up for it but uh sam has been very generous in the past with yes his, and then- uh, the forbidden Snickers bars. Whenever I uh, end up, you know, forgetting that it's his birthday or something, I send him a, a, a quick care package of random cast molds. And I don't complain. <laughs> I always accept ingots of everything. I mean, he ended up getting a bunch of scrap Damascus last time I sent him one of those. So Which is going to get put to use. Too much. I'm actually um, my my search. Have I have I regaled the podcast audience with my um, many month long search for refractory in bulk? Uh, I think maybe you've mentioned it maybe once or twice. I've heard it like a thousand times. But. Yeah, it's it's been three or four months of trying to find a place that will actually send a large amount of dense castable refractory to me um, mm-hmm. here in rural Tasmania um, at some sort of reasonable price and. Um, People just like outright ignore me or say they won't ship there or you're going to have to get a friend to pick it up and freight it to organize freight yourself and all that sort of thing. And then of all places, um, somebody finally contacted me after I had organized with with Dean from Reclaim Creative to actually go and pick up a, a giant sack of it for me and because and, um, I'm building a kiln and building a new forge. Um, yeah. So I need a I need a lot of it, and I want dense castable. I'm not don't want this light nonsense. I want I want something that you know it's you struggle to move the forge afterwards because that stuff is yeah. it it just it works with. I don't like having to baby my refractory, and hard castable is pretty tough stuff. Um, so I'd already organised with it, and then somebody finally got back to me, 
after like months and they're like, oh, um, we don't ship to you, but there's a place in Tasmania. Have you tried them? And they sent me to their website and their website mentions nothing about anything refractory related whatsoever. And <laughs> it's it's a um, cement place for tilers to get grouts okay. and, and paver stuff. And so I called them and I'm like, I, do you do you have refra- castable refractory? And he goes, yeah, yeah, we got castable refractory, fire bricks, ice wall, and I'm like, it's not on your website. And he goes, no, nah, it's not much market for it down here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, there is now. <laughs> will you uh, will you freight such and such to to Hagley? And he's like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, sure. Um, and I just paid him over the phone with a credit card, and it turned up the next day. And the payment hadn't even cleared on the credit card yet. <laughs> so after all of that faffing around, I now have like, and it's good stuff too. So I'm I'm really wow. pleased. As much uh, as Murphy Law Murphy's Law tends to kick you, kismet does happen. Yeah, yeah. So I now finally have my refractory. So I will be re- rebuilding my forge because the post box forge that I have. Uh, that I've been using was always meant to be a design prototype. Yeah, it was a test piece that you. It was. A, it was in love it's with. why it looks like it was hit by like several cars, and it's mm-hmm. it's meant it, it's it's just held together with tack welds and things because it was meant to just be like okay, let's get this working, and then I'll get some refractory and we'll build the real thing. And I just couldn't find refractory, mm-hmm. um, so now I finally can. So I've got some extra hardware coming and I'm going to be building a really nice one with like over center latches and things so I can actually remove the bottom off of it and reline the bottom when I need to. And it's going to be, and I'm stealing Sam's idea of putting the steel lining around the doors so mm-hmm. you're not, not constantly banging into your refractory. I um, do highly so recommend. It's, yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, so especially since the prototype works so well, like that forge is brilliant. Mm. Even for a dodgy prototype forge, it's really good. Um, <laughs> so very much looking forward to this. I'm toying with the notion of making it dual burner and actually mm. having them go off at offset angles to create a double vortex inside mm. and get that really even heat coming up because the only downside to my current forge is that it is hotter on one side of the door yeah, um, that's true so with always, dual I'd, burners i'd be worried about like it the 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 convection of both burners like trying to blow each other out or you know heating up that's the, why that that's why they'd be off, offset and but you never know yeah oh you know i'd be interested to see how it works yeah, I reckon if I bed them properly in the refractory and and whatnot, mm. it should be fine. But um, yeah, we'll see. I'll, I'll play with the idea. I can always modify it later. I might start with one and then upgrade later because I've got two mm. small burners. And uh, in theory, I would be able to run them, the two of them at a lower PSI and achieve mm. the same temperature. So it shouldn't be much more gas usage to do it. But we'll see. We'll see. You can only ever improve by experimenting with these things. This is true. Uh, my song of the week is one that probably everybody's heard that was at least an 80s baby, um, but probably doesn't know the name of, or they might. Uh, they probably heard the, of the band Primus before because Primus have been around for a while. Um, but this song, you've, you've probably heard, and if you actually heard the song playing, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that song before, but you wouldn't know. You wouldn't have really listened closely to it, and you probably don't know the title. Uh, it's called Winona's Big Brown Beaver. <laughs> and um, 
the the music video for it is probably the most bad trip music video <laughs> you will ever see in your life. It will haunt your dreams. Um, but it's just a bop. I've been listening to uh, my '90s playlist a fair bit, and um, it came up because that '90s playlist has grown so big. There's so many songs on it. I I'll be there working, listening to. Them. I'm like, oh man, this is an absolute jam. I got to have this as my song of the week. But then I'll think that about every fifth song. Mm-hmm. Um, and shuffle is weird. Sometimes it just will it will just refuse to play a song on a playlist for ages, and then days later it'll just play it. Um, and this one came up, and I'm like, oh man, I forgot this song was on this playlist. This is absolutely <laughs> awesome. It's it is uh, proof in a song for any bass players in the audience. Um, it's proof that a bass can absolutely be the lead instrument in a band. Mm. Um, it's it's got a great bass line. Um, it's it's just forefronted through the whole song. But yeah, watch the music video at your own risk, <laughs> at the risk of your own sanity. I haven't heard that song in years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I hey, forgot dress up like a, a big, big country <laughs> cowboy and march through the bush. I forgot that it was even a thing until you mentioned mm-hmm. it, and then I was like, "Oh God, I remember that." Yeah, they had all these people shitting on them, thinking that they were singing about Winona Ryder mm-hmm. in the song, uh, but they they weren't. It was just made up a name because it fit the lyrics. Um, yep. And they got they got really shitty about it because they everyone thought that accused them of personally attacking Winona Ryder for having a big brown beaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But what have you been up to, Sam? Uh, nothing. No, no, it's not, not entirely true. I did um get out to the forge the other day and forge a couple of hammers. Mm-hmm. Um, f- one for a guy who's already paid for one, and the other ones for one that. A custom commission that's going to get some engraving on it. Ooh. Yeah, I can personally attest to the engraving of your hammers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the inlay. Mm. Yeah, no, this one will get a little bit of inlay too. Um, nothing super like this one's not super technical. It's just, he just wanted some like simple stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I said yes, even though I'm not supposed to be taking commissions at the moment because I'm really terrible at not taking commissions. Mm-hmm. <sighs> the curse of the artisan. <laughs> And I have been working, speaking of commissions, I have been working on the Pugio Dagger commission that I took like two years ago now and trying to catch up with. I finally finished the hole in the guard and it was the biggest pain in the ass that I've ever had because it's, it's a 20 mil thick bar of brass. Um, It's a heavy guard. (laughs) Well, yeah, because like he basically drew the whole design and gave it to me, right? Like he, he had the full thing drawn up when he gave it to me. I should have said no, like <laughs> I should have said no, but I didn't. And so, yeah, I had to, um, I had to cut and like file this thing by hand because I don't have a mill. I don't <laughs> like, and it may have been faster if you just sent it to me. It probably would have been, honestly, the turnaround. <laughs> and given that my the majority of the guards I do, I drill like two holes and then use my jeweler's saw. Yeah, um, but you can't really do that, that as easily through. You know. I I started trying to cut it with a jeweler saw, and it, after about three minutes, I was like, "I have made a one millimeter cut in this brass." <laughs> yeah, brass is really gummy too when it comes yeah, it was, to fine tooth swords. I even went at it with um, the carbide burrs on my um, Fordham, and it took forever. Even though I chain drilled mm. it and all, it took forever to cut the fucking thing, and then getting it to file properly 
this brass just did not want to move. It was self like it was self lubricating to the point that it was actually preventing the teeth from cutting. Did you anneal it? Yeah, yeah. At, in, at, at, in, at intervals, not because it does work so. hard, and as you work it, yeah, no, you may have been doing yourself a mischief. Probably more than likely. I, I just I got so sick of it that I just kept going. <laughs> But anyway, so um, yeah, I finally got it cut so that it fits now, and now I've got to um, shape the guard and um, put the notches in it that he's put into the design and then finish hand sanding the blade. I got the blade ground up, and it was the most challenging grind I've ever done. Because of the weird profile of it? Well, yeah, because it's got a, a recurve, and mm. like it's got two, two recurves and then a spear point. And not only that, but the edges have to be relatively narrow, so the angle is quite steep mm. comparative to like a normal dagger. So that it's it's like having a recurve sloyd knife or a recurve puko, where you've got to have like that perfect twenty five yeah. the whole way around. It was the biggest pain in the ass that I have ever ground. Could you uh, do it I, like a vertical grind on the wheel on the contact? Wheel? Oh, I didn't have to. Do, I didn't have to because I could. I can lay my grinder over, so I could do it yeah, horizontal gotcha. with the wheel. But even then, it was you got, just, you got that tilt package. Yeah, it's still just it was still just a massive pain. Um, mm. But I'm glad I finally got it done. Now I just got to hand sand the bastard and <laughs> put it together. Um, yeah. But other than that, it's just basically been, uh, yeah, trying to catch up with the the orders and stuff. And I've also been doing a lot of work for my dad recently. Uh, I spent all day day today building a shed with him. So. Uh, I haven't had a lot of time for other stuff. Um, on the note of fixing refractory and stuff like that, I actually have to tear apart my post box and rebuild it. What because happened? It, well, it's just you know, the insides are rotted from all of the flux that I've used in it. <laughs> it's oh, right. it, the the. Uh, are you forging, firing your flux again? Oh man! Well, I I dropped one of the. I was doing a live stream and I dropped a bottle opener in there. Uh and it's like 10 mil square bottle opener and it literally disappeared in the floor of the forge it was so did like it, the... as it sank did it suddenly <laughs> turn into a thumbs up you could just see the tail literally you could just see the tail poking up and then it just went under Do the a thumbs up <laughs> like yeah, terminator was, yeah that's it <laughs> uh, it was the most horrific thing i'd ever seen i was like oh god the, the floor is literally just an inch thick layer of fucking sam slag. plays the floor is lava for for realsies <laughs> And the, the walls, like, even though I coated the walls in RTZ, which is a Zirconia-based, um, mm. like, lining that they use for, like, nuclear power plants and stuff, the um, <laughs> the flux that I've used has actually eaten through it uh, <laughs> into the ISO wall. So it's, it's not looking great in there. And if I keep using more flux, then eventually it's going to leak into the burner because, like, it's actually touching the bottom of the burner lip now. Mm-hmm. So yes, that whole forge is going to have to be torn out and redone with new refractory, and I'm not looking forward to it. Like a Brisbane bogan's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, my song of the week this week is actually from a band that my dad is a massive fan of, and I grew up listening to with him all the time. Uh, and is host to like one of the world's best guitarists as named by like a number of different musicians over the years, uh, John Williams. Um, now John Williams, it's, 
you watch the music video to this song and it's the song by the band sky which is his band uh and they're kind of like an orchestral slash rock band it's weird they do some really cool stuff toccata fugue in d which was like a very popular um early my wedding song rhapsody yeah well they did like the upbeat version the upscale version of that that was played in was it like blade runner or one of those runner man i can't remember right. um but anyway so the um the song is called la danza or danza which is d-a-n-z-a um and if you watch the music video or, or like a live performance of it, watch John Williams play it because it sounds like there are two guitars. There aren't. Yeah. It's just John Williams. He's playing both the rhythm and the lead at the same time. And he looks bored doing it. And it's really irritating to watch because you're watching him and he's kind of like, da, 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 just like fucking bobbing his head along while his fingers are just moving, in like, Zen concentration. Yeah. It goes the into most, resting bitch face. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing to watch. But um, also I love that that music video because of the drummer. The drummer has glasses that are literally like an inch thick. Oh, and right. he, he, he looks like the stereotypical nerd from like the 70s. But he plays the drums like an absolute madman. Like he's having an absolute ball of a time. So you've got John Williams looking bored and him just going absolute ham like animal from the Muppets. <laughs> it's it's an interesting mix. Yes. And it's also well, just a bop of a song as well. So it's a instrumental, not a not a song, but yeah. Right. They can be good. Yeah. Like Cliffs of Dover. Oh man. Cliffs of Dover is a freaking jam. It is. Or um, Whammajamma is my favorite mm-hmm. instrumental piece. Yeah. Because I, I have dreams. I want to be a, a harmonica player, but I don't have the soul to do it. <laughs> people people always think that's silly for me to say, but they haven't tried playing harmonica. You have to have soul to be able to mm-hmm. pull that shit off. You can't See, do it wanted, otherwise. I've always wanted to play fiddle, but I just don't have the bluegrass in me. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Devil get your soul. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Won't be I, able to fend him off. That, I ain't getting that fiddle of gold. I was actually reminiscing on Devil went down to Georgia the other day. Like, even if you're not into country, mm. everybody loves that song. It's just of a course. great song. <laughs> I'll whip you again, you son of a bitch. I'm the best I've ever been. <laughs> best <I've> ever been. <laughs> uh, the, although the the sequel was not great. Uh, no, yeah, no. The sequel, sequel doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I tend to think that's like you know, Pitch Perfect two and three doesn't exist. Yeah, no, no. There was there was only one movie. It's like see, Game of Thrones ended at season seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jamie didn't go out like no bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I like I refuse to believe that Game of Thrones season eight ever actually existed. It just, <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing the, that with the Mandalorian. Uh, not the Mandalorian. The Book of Boba Fett right now. I loved the Mandalorian. I thought it was freaking phenomenal. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, mm-hmm. and I was so excited to find out they're doing a TV series about my all time favorite Star Wars character, Boba Fett. It was awful, but everybody loves it. I don't get it. Uh, yeah, Fans everyone's saying, mate. "Oh, it's amazing." It's so it's awful. 
is doing my boy bad. It's doing my boy wrong. <laughs> and I've been, I really tentatively went um, into Obi-Wan Kenobi um, expecting mm-hmm. like it's 50-50. Like Mandalorian was phenomenal. Book of Boba Fett was terrible. Um, so what, where's it going to lie? It's brilliant. <laughs> it's so good. It's, it's so hit and miss. Although I will say that the Mandalorian made up for all of the modern yeah. movies. Like, yeah. I, I was a fan of the prequels. I know that not everyone was, you know, like Phantom Menace and all that kind of stuff. I was a big fan because I grew up with them. Like when I was a teenager, they were coming out. Darth, they were, Darth Maul was my jam. Well, yeah. And like Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I the modern ones, like barring Rogue One, Rogue One was okay. I, I I really liked Rogue One. I'm I'm I know I'm fairly alone in this. I really liked it. Yeah, no, I and I, I liked and it. I will and I will be watching Andor when it comes out because <laughs> I think that's an important part of the story. Mm. Anyway, yeah, no, that's I just, not what this podcast is about. <laughs> <laughs> we can totally do like a film review. We're just, we're just going like welcome we're to the Forgecast podcast segued. where we talk about Star Wars movies. That's right. God, and the fans are probably like half the fans are probably listening, going, "No, no, mind, keep talking, man." Everyone's the shit, man. It's great. (laughs) The other ones like, "Shut the fuck up, nerd." (laughs) Back to the blacksmith and stuff. (laughs) Oh man! All right, so since we 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 have um, over, we've got three different platforms that you guys can message us. You've got emails, we've got Instagram, we've got Facebook, and across all of them, in the last week or two, we have gotten eleven emails so um, we're gonna make that our topic of the week yeah and some of them are multiple um, questions so you know yeah like. <laughs> and, some, and a couple of them are long um, <laughs> as well so um we're just gonna make that the topic of the week this week and tr- play catchy up seats um which means we can go straight into our inspirations of the week who has been inspiring you this week sam well, my inspiration this week is this person that I'd been following on YouTube for a long time and completely forgot to actually check if they have an Instagram. And I, I know I was doing this last minute and Alex gives me shit for this all the time because I completely forget to get like write down inspirations during the week and rightfully so, he should keep me the fucking task and so should you guys that are listening right now. Three years, you'd think he'd be used to it. I know, and Alex does 99% of the fucking work in this show. I am literally just a voice on the fucking microphone. Anyway, that being said, I came across something that was incredibly inspiring and incredibly depressing at the same time. You found my channel again, didn't you? (laughs) No, no, that's been around for ages. Um, Now, (laughs) most of you guys will know Working With Iron Nathan on YouTube, Hmm. Um, the channel. Now... Nathan, like, I've loved his content for a long time. A, because he does some really nice build videos where he doesn't talk. He does the, you know, firelight forging. And because he forges with coal, the the atmosphere is amazing. His fo- his camera work is always really good. And one of my favorite is, videos. Is he his, the guy that bought Alex Steele's Pilkington? I can't remember if it's him or another guy named Nathan who bought one. Because uh, I know there's two. Yeah. But anyway, but I know the guy that did buy it has amazing cinematography and does coal forging and yeah. But um, yeah, working with Nathan, working out with Iron Nathan has done some really good how tos on YouTube on like forging leaves and stuff. He actually great did, videos. Yeah, he actually did the first leaf forging video that showed me a different technique to make a leaf, 
Mm-hmm. And ever since watching that video, I haven't had a trouble making a leaf. Hmm. Like, I have always hated making leaves, but after I watched that video, it made it 6,000 times easier. I will never not be thankful for that video. <laughs> and I highly suggest you go check it out. But anyway, I decided on a whim to go check out his Instagram, which, uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, it is nathan.baker.creator. And... For those of you who don't know what he's been doing recently, he's been doing a lot of repousse work um, in scale. You know, we're talking a tortoise that is like six foot tall. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that looks and like this... the, the tortoise from NeverEnding Story. Like, the face is exactly the same. Exactly. And he does um, just spectacularly clean work, right? And he's he has never had education in that form of metalworking, right? Now, I get on, like, this is the inspiring bit. He's really talented, but and is, he's, like, very good with sharing his knowledge, but his most recent post is a post of an elephant's head that he has made. And in that post, he has said that he is now retiring from the art of blacksmithing. Ah. And I didn't know this was happening, and, you know, like, this is... This was entirely unexpected, and I only found out about it literally <laughs> as we were getting ready to record today. But yeah, the the tortoise project that he worked on, which is massive, like this thing is huge, apparently sank him. Um, and if you go and read the post, which I highly suggest you do, I was going to kind of read it out, but you know, I think it's better if you go read it yourselves. But Basically, he has run aground, as so many of us in this job do, with monetary problems, just trying to finance what is an incredibly expensive art um, and learn at the same time. And because, you know, we don't, we don't get time off to go educate ourselves, we kind of have to learn as we go. And when you're learning, it's really hard to be fast at something. And when you're not fast at something, you don't make a lot of money. Mm. and so he has pushed himself to the limit and he's burned out and I, I i hate to see it because like i said i've always loved his content on youtube and you know like his his attitude towards smithing and uh his attitude towards his attitude towards art has always been amazing and i highly suggest you go over and send him some love even you know if it was just to let him know that he was an inspirational part of the community. And I hope yeah. that he can somehow get back to it one day. Yeah, it, may, it might be a temporary setback because, I mean, he inspires so many people with his videos. Well, the, the big thing is that that post was made, the elephant face, was made on December 4th, 2021. Mm. It's been a well over six months. Mm. Um. And I didn't even realize he was gone. And that's the thing that really upset me was the fact that, you know, like this, this cornerstone of my existence as a blacksmith on YouTube was kind of disappeared and I didn't notice uh, because I've been so distracted with my own shit. And so I hope that's that he's just doing it. well. No matter how bad your shit gets, there's always other people going through it as well. Yeah. And, and I hope that he is, I hope that he is well. Um, I hope he's doing well, and I, I hope that you guys go out there and check out his YouTube channel, which I'm sure is still there, 
and his Instagram and check out the artwork that he's created in that time. Because he is an incredibly talented man, and I think that he really enjoyed his craft. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's kind of a melancholy inspiration of the week, unfortunately. I can actually see direct inspiration um, in some a pair of his scrolling tongs in the cinnamon tongs that you made me. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Like there is, he has directly inspired me to make things in the past. Um, and like one of my favorite videos of his was making a pair of jewelers, uh, vices, like a jeweler's vice. Yeah. Uh, one piece jeweler's vice, which is something that I wanted to recreate myself at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, because like I, I use one on a daily basis when I'm filing, uh, my chisels for engraving. Um, and I thought it'd be really cool to own my own. And he's basically one of the only people on YouTube that's ever done one of those. <laughs> It's a beautiful piece too. It really is. He just he does such clean work. <laughs> and yeah. so to see that he's left the community, to see that he's had to retire, basically. So, such a loss. It really is. It it fucking hurts me. <laughs> I, I hate it. Like I even though I know that he's still out there and he can still come back and stuff like that, I hate the fact that he went he left he had to leave because life got the better of him. Yeah. Mm. and unfortunately it rings really kind of close to home with me because in the last couple of weeks i've struggled with my own you know demons around my creative ability and my my footprint on the internet and stuff like that and i've really been struggling with the idea of of carrying on the way i am um and so to see that you know like another one of those great inspirations of mine is is thrown in the towel is kind of well Perhaps this can be a, uh, a positive for you, uh, a yeah. silver lining on the dark crowd, cloud of despair, because if you were to leave, think of the number of people that you have inspired that would be, go, what? What the fuck? <laughs> and then have their own journey, and then it will create a domino effect. Yes. And there'll be nobody true. left, Sam. That's terrible. This is all on my shoulders. <laughs> Just be Kyle Royer and Niels looking at each other going, what do we do now? Make awesome stuff, because that's what both of those guys do. They do. They really do. But anyway, with that being said, like I, I hope, as again, I hope he's he's doing well, and I hope that, like, despite the fact that he's had to move on, that you guys can still collect some knowledge from his channel and mm. some inspiration from the skill that he has applied and the amount of education that he's put himself through in the time that he's had um, on the various platforms that he's been on. Um, yeah, so thank you, Nathan, if you ever hear this. Thank you for everything you did, and I hope one day we can see you back in the forge. Yeah, but anyway, with that absolutely. being said, who has been inspiring you, Alex? Uh, of all things, a bookbinder. Mm, um, I love bookbinding. Bookbinding's been making a real comeback in the last 10 years or so, um, and people are picking it up this basically medieval craft like hand hand bound books are a thing from not just yesteryear but yester yesteryear yeah <laughs> they're, they're from where yesteryear was back in yesteryear um and yet um it was actually i remember the specific video that probably created a new generation of um 
you know, ad hoc book binders and it was Nerdforge um, mm. doing a rebinding of the complete works of the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, and the video went viral as hell and it caused a heap of people to start getting into book binding and realizing it was a thing. But while Martina and Hansi are very inspirational, they are not my inspiration of the week um, this this week. Um it's actually a person on, I don't know their name. They're from Sweden um, and they're on Instagram under the handle stick and rope. Uh, but it's the word stick, the letter N, and then the word rope, all one word. They make, they do book binding and they make um, custom books, but they make custom books that look like they were literally just unearthed from a 1,500-year-old tomb. <laughs> yeah, literally like it, dug up next to the Necronomicon. Buried under Jerusalem, the sort of thing that Tomb Raider would pull out or Indiana Jones would pull out covered in cobwebs and, and shit, you know, like as soon as they open it, there's a gust of wind that whips the pages to a certain page <laughs> and there's the spell that, you know, brings people back from the dead, like that sort of thing. But these things don't just look like a prop from a film. They look legit yeah. Like they, they look like I would be genuinely scared to touch them in case I got, you know, some sort of hex on me. It's crazy. They are messed up. The corners are all weathered. The leather is aged and antiqued. Even the paper in them, they're just blank journals. I say just blank journals, but they're like, it's blank pages in there that you can write on. But the pages themselves, they're like vellum. Mm. <laughs> it's. It's just a stupid level of detail. I would love to own one of these things. They're quite expensive, but worth every cent of the, you can see the work that goes into making these things. Because making something, for lack of a better term, old and fucked up and make it convincing is difficult. It's incredibly difficult. I don't think people understand how fucking hard it is to make something look legitimately aged. I had um, this conversation with a heap of people when I made my broke back sacks a while back because the guy wanted it to be weathered and like mean looking. And to del- you can just, you know, scuff something up and it doesn't look like it's actually, it looks like something that's been scuffed up. To make something that has the character of something that old is difficult and it is an art form unto itself, one that I'm not particularly good at. But this person is expert level good at it mm-hmm. just i want everything that she makes <laughs> you, you'd be hard pressed to convince me that they weren't ancient like <laughs> you yeah know, you you would actually have to fight if i just saw a photo of one of these you would have to fight to convince me that they weren't old i my my I, she never shows her process i secretly think she is actually like a lara croft type character <laughs> that's, that's, she's just robbing graves. she's going traveling the world robbing these ancient tombs of their spell books and getting mm-hmm. an eraser and just rubbing out all the, the stuff inside <laughs> so it's blank pages no it's it's wicked work it's so good um and i i cannot believe like every post she puts up about a new project i just cannot believe it what mm. what she's gone and done like even some of the books are like held shut with chains and padlocks and you mm. can see that she's used just like normal brass padlocks but she's put them through such an antiquing process that they look 
like they're from the medieval period sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's just incredible work. I absolutely love it. And it is the the absolute uh, epitome of attention to detail. Yeah. And I mean, uh, it's why I, where I get the inspiration from it because it, every time I see her work, it reminds me that you can go a little bit further with the detail. For me, like one of the things that I find hard about weathering is, and so many people do, is that I am a naturally an ordered person. I need order in what I do. And so therefore, whenever I weather something, I, tr- I end up weathering it evenly across the whole thing. And that's why it looks yeah. illegitimate. Whereas she's really got the eye. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, I love how on every description of every book, she'll put like, this is two days old or five days mm-hmm. old or something <laughs> like that, just to remind people. Yeah. <laughs> and she really needs to. So uh, yeah, look her up, look her up, stick and rope uh, on Instagram. I'm not sure if they're on any other platform, but you need to follow this girl. She's insanely talented. On a, on a slightly related topic, bookbinding YouTube is my, like, happy place. Because <laughs> the, the quiet watching someone make a book from scratch, amazing. Yeah, it's a thing you don't really think of until you see it, and then you realize how fascinating it is. I always wanted to get into it. It's just that I'd have to build an entire new tool set just to do it. Yeah, not too many <laughs> tools, though. It's pretty pretty low budget on the tool side of things. Mm. luckily it'd be yes. it would be fun going through and making them yeah well i've made my own paper before so you mm-hmm. know like it's just that extra step always wanted to do that is it as fun as it sounds it is like it's it's really easy mm. um and like the like hard chewing part, up all the bark yeah that's it that's the hard part <laughs> yeah and then waiting for it to pass through your body yeah, that's it <laughs> no no you're budgery guy just like <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um but it is it is fun um it can be a little onerous and a little uh messy as well though obviously yeah as all good crafts should be of course i mean we what we do as blacksmiths is pretty onerous and messy most of the time it's funny to think that there's people out there that would find what we do boring what sad lives they must lead (laughs) honestly So uh, with inspirations out of the way, that brings us in, I guess, to Technique of the Week. Technique of the Week. 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 Technique of the Week is slowly peeling the protective film off your ear screens thanks to the handsome fellas at Nordic Edge. Knife steels, handle materials, kits, and even sexy fully kitted out 2x72 grinders can be found at their easy-to-use website, nordicedge.com.au. Have you seen those grinders that they're selling? They look pretty good. Have you seen what they come with? Yeah. Tilt table, contact wheel, small wheel kit. I am tempted. I I love how understated Bjorn is with the advertising as well. He's like, they're pretty pretty okay. Yeah, they're all right. (laughs) And I'm, I'm just... I had it like the uh, on the Nordic Edge website works really well on the phone. I mostly I don't usually use websites on the phone, and I was mm. I had it there. And normally I'll close my browser afterwards because tabs open in Chrome on Android uses heaps of memory. So uh, I had that open, and I just kept going back to it, and I'm just looking at it, and I'm like, "What? No <laughs> fucking way! This is awesome!" I'm really considering getting one because. Um, 
you should. With Nissa making knives as well, a second grinder would not go amiss in my workshop, let me tell you. Yeah, and then it's you the only tool. You can handle yeah. Frankie to Nissa. <laughs> well, I, I raised it with Nissa and she's like, oh, yeah, that'd be really cool. I'd get a lot of use out of that. I'm like, no, 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 you're getting Frankie. <laughs> I'm getting shiny new grinder. <laughs> uh, it's the only tool in the workshop that we actually queue up for. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, definitely would not go amiss. I just have to find a, a space to squeeze it in in that tiny shit box of a shed. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Anyway, technique of the week this week is planishing. It's something that we've uh, sort of talked about a little bit in the past before but planishing in simple terms is the um, art of taking a lumpy piece of forging and making it a smooth piece of forging yeah. um, doing you know what we are always going on about Lynn Ray doing <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's commonly done at lower heats than forging because you're trying to move the metal only very small amounts um, and it's distributed amounts, which is a, a term you probably don't think of. Um, but you start noticing this sort of thing when you practice with plasticine. Mm. If you strike the plasticine, you leave um, divots the shape of your hammer. If you lightly sort of tap, tap, tap across the surface of the plasticine, you start distributing the surface more evenly. So... Um, the highs and the lows, the difference between the highs and the lows starts getting smaller and smaller. And that's essentially what uh, planishing is. But it doesn't have to be just done with a hammer. Mm-hmm. Joey Vandersteeg, who we would still love to have on the show if we can ever get a hold of him, he's a busy man, um, <laughs> showed a, a really great example of how planishing can be done at high enough heats with a butcher's block brush. Mm. I mean, those things are aggressive. I mean, it's not going to take, you know, your brute to forge finish out. But it's um, it's very good for that final pass. Um, you can also do it uh, a little bit of it with uh, rasp, hot rasp. Well, that's more of a filing, but you can finish off a planishing with that and get quite remarkable finishes. Yeah, you um, you quite regularly come across planishing in sheet metal work, where you're uh, you know you make something very lumpy to create the shape and then you planish it to create the smoothness, which is very mm. common in like uh, armoring and, and stuff like that. Um, that I've found it, it, that's always a painful thing. And that's why English wheels were invented, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is, you know, it's, it's a much easier pl- way to go about planishing than, uh, <laughs> than doing it by hand. Not only does it make for a prettier piece at the end of it, um, a a lot of people like to um, excuse their lack of planishing by saying, oh, it looks handmade. No, it just looks shit and lumpy. Um, (laughs) Planishing, a well-planished finish doesn't have to go all the way to perfectly flush. No. It's neatening it out. It's it's distributing your your texture. Um, and one of the things that is particularly valuable to learn how to do is forging blade bevels because errant hammer blows in a blade bevel will leave you sitting at the grinder swearing like a sailor for hours sometimes. Um, whereas or if you have correctly... throwing the blade out. <laughs> yeah, but if you have correctly planished those bevels beforehand, then the grinding process can be done very, very quickly. Yeah, and, and this is where um, stuff like uh, kitai, which is the, the process of Japanese water forging, 
uh, is quite useful because in order to planish properly, especially on blade bevels, you want there to be no or little scale. Mm. So like Joey say, talking about Blitch's block brush, in planishing, brushing really vigorously at a high heat and then letting it cool down before you start doing your planishing pass is actually a really good way to limit the amount of scale that you push into the surface of the material. Or doing Kitai, which is to blow off the scale using heat of the um, using the heat of the blade and the water on the anvil. Mm. Um, both are just serving the same purpose of getting rid of the scale that you would otherwise press into the surface and ruin your nice smooth finish. Because a lot of uh, beginners don't realize that when that scale forms, it it's very hard because it cools fairly quickly, whereas the steel underneath it does not quick cool as quickly because it's got more mass. So if you hammer while there is formed scale on the surface, that scale hammers divots into the steel underneath your hammer. It's like forging a texture of that scale into the steel itself. So mm-hmm. it's why we have the brushes and it's why we should use the brushes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Understanding um, where that, at what point that scale forms as well is very important. The the one other thing that I would mention is a perfectly flat-faced hammer will not planish properly because mm. you are always going to hit with the corners. You are always mm-hmm. going to hit with the edges of the hammer and never with the center. And that's why having just a very soft kind of pillow radius to the face of your hammer rather than having this perfectly flat plane is why most it's like you, hammers you, are not perfectly flat. You know, you've you've plugged the bike pump into the side of your hammer and you've just given it one push. <laughs> yeah, that's just it. one pump. That's it. <laughs> you haven't really inflated yep. it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, learning to planish, very valuable. I'm big on the, the visual metaphors, you know me. Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it works. All right, so let's let's dive headfirst into this giant pile of emails. You guys, uh, when it rains, it pours. You either we either have a week where there's no one sending us message, or there's a week where everybody sends us a message. I, I swear it's because like the week that we get all the messages, people are like, oh, we should not send a message this week, and then yeah. like they go, oh, well, there was no emails this week, so let's just send them all now. Emptiness <laughs> <laughs> flows. Back and forth. Yeah. Well, our first email comes from Brian, and he says, Hi, Alex and Sam. Just wanted to say that I really enjoy your Forgecast. I recently discovered you through a recent show with Jason Knight, who I follow religiously. Well, I'm now totally hooked on your show. You're both very informative as well as greatly entertaining. I'm curious about your backgrounds in education. I heard on a few different Forgecasts about some of Alex's history, having trained in electrical engineering and perhaps some studying game theory, plus marketing and web design. Sam demonstrates extensive knowledge of metallurgy. If there isn't already a Forgecast where you describe your history, education, and training, I think there are probably others like myself that would take an interest, including how you made the transition to full-time black or bladesmithing. Truly brilliant show from truly brilliant guys, Brian. Oh, thank you, Brian. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, I mean, I, I know I have covered how I became a full-time bladesmith a few times on the show. Um mostly a much earlier on in the in the piece so i think we kind of assume people mm. <laughs> listen to all the shows which is probably not the best way to go about things but you know yeah, probably not yeah <laughs> when you when you're getting into a new podcast you can pretty usually safely skip the first 10 or 20 episodes while they're finding their groove and we are no exception it took us a while to find our groove this is very true very very true um <laughs> So I was about to be really shady and say you can skip the first thirty-two episodes. Um. <laughs> oh, harsh, 
We love you, Nils. You can skip more. You can skip more than that. I didn't even start making knives until two years ago. <laughs> this is true. This is very true. You were the blacksmith back when we started. I was can useless. You imagine? Yeah, I still uh, do quite a bit of blacksmithing work. I just don't post about it because it never gets any bloody likes. No, no, it never gets traction. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as my extensive knowledge of metallurgy, you may be sad to to uh, know that I have no formal education in metallurgy. I or maybe no impressed f- to know. Well, I mean, you know, um, I, I have no formal education outside of a uh, my year twelve graduate's diploma and a. Um, and a cert two in security and operations. Amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I, I am a very lackluster ed, ed, in the education department. So uh, my, my extensive knowledge of metallurgy comes from a, an extensive amount of time spent reading lots and lots and lots of books. Mm. Which is more Which, empowering really. Cause it means anybody can go and do it. Well, I mean, that's it. Like, I, I, everything I have learned, I have learned by seeking out the knowledge wherever I can find it by reading university metallurgy textbooks or listening to various, you know, kind of um, university lectures on the the topic and and reading every bloody forum post I can come and get my hands on by Kevin Cashin and all those guys. So, um, yeah, by no means am I am I a master metallurgist or anything like that. It's literally just the fact that I've read a lot, <laughs> which is pretty much what anyone with a degree has done. It's just that they have the piece of paper to show that they did. Mm. Um, the I, I've talked about my background heaps on this show, but um, I haven't talked about how I got into doing it full time. Um, and it's my last career and probably the thing I'm best at is behavioral game theory. And what I used to do as a career was I would train, uh, small businesses to become profitable. And I was very good at it. I got, I made a lot of people be able to follow their dreams. Um, and I still keep in contact with a lot of them. Um, and I, I took great pride in that career and then one day decided I need to do it for myself. (laughs) Um, and I could have picked anything. I really could have, um, I, I do a lot of things. I dabble in a lot of different fields. Um, but I, there's a, there's just a poetry to forging steel. Mm -hmm. I just love it. And being able to imagine a thing and then make that thing come into existence where you can hold it and where somebody will fall in love with it and want to buy it off you. And I, um, I decided I wanted to do it and I wanted to come home to do it. And home for me is Tasmania. Um, I wanted to be closer to the family I care about. And I, um, yeah, it was, I needed to, I'd hit some dark, dark times in my life and I needed to be somewhere where that was healthier for me doing something that was healthier for me. And, um, I gave up everything, everything I had, um, quite a prominent career, um, quite a, a high pay packet as well at the time <laughs> to work for myself, which is not a high pay packet at all. It is quite the opposite. Sometimes it's no pay packet. Um, but you can't let it's true. You can't buy happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's, it's your actions that get you that. So I, I mean, made the call. <laughs> I've, I've spoken about my my decision to go into blacksmithing, except it wasn't a decision because, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, where, where Alex chose his path, uh, I had mine foist upon me um, when 
my anxiety disorder actually led to the point where I was starting to uh, black out at work. Uh, as a, and I was working as a security officer at the time, which is a little dangerous to do when you're a security officer, uh, especially when you're blacking out during very high stress events. Um, so my panic disorder led me to not having a job and not having any really future, any future prospects. And then I ran into a guy who ran a company that sold knife making grinders by the name of Jake Mantell. And he said, why don't you just start a YouTube channel and try and start selling knives for a living? You seem to be pretty good at it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like five years later on, here we are. Um, I just decided that I didn't want to do anything else. And, you know, it's not been great for the financials, but, you know, I still wouldn't do anything else. There's more to life than money. Oh, hell yeah. And um, sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom to see that it's funny how many people that we've spoken to that like share our craft have got similar starting stories where it's like really similar starting stories. we were in a shit place and we decided to start smacking stuff with a hammer yeah (laughs) um actually i know it's a very controversial uh piece of literature but i'm always reminded of the book fight club Mm -hmm. um which is one of I, i think a brilliant philosophical piece and i think everybody should read it but there's uh, a continuing theme in it where the um, a narrator keeps saying, uh, asking Tyler Durden, you know, is this rock bottom? And Tyler's like, not yet. Mm. <laughs> and all the way through the book, it's like his life is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's just destroying every, you know, job and relationship and everything he's got. It's just his life is just collapsing around him. He keeps saying, that, you know, this, is this rock bottom? Nope, not yet. <laughs> And then finally, at the end of the book, it's like, this is rock bottom. And it's the the theme there being that you don't know what rock bottom is until you've been there. A lot of people think that they've been there, uh, but the people who have actually been there and known what that's like, it's, um, yeah, it can be a dark so, place. Yes, and it's why Sam and I keep saying um, in, uh, what is it? I've forgotten the Latin now. I'm too tired. It's late <laughs> at night. Uh, in ignis veritas veritas. in inferno vitae yes yeah in the fire there is truth because it's one of those things when you first strike your first piece of hot steel with a hammer it's an awakening Mm -hmm. you realize that you can form steel to your will it's a powerful thing um, and it makes the rest of your life fall into sharp perspective. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Maybe we should do a further episode on that. What do you guys think? Let yeah, us let us know. We'd be happy to do that. Uh, anyway, our next email comes from uh, Kevin Repetto. Repito. I'm terrible at pronouncing names. Anyway, he says, hey, fellas, love the podcast. Been looking at getting into blacksmithing for about a year now and have been doing tons of research and looking for anything I can on making my own equipment. I have come to the insulating of the forge and I'm having a difficult time making sense of refractories. Specifically, what are the differences between something like satanite and castorlite? Everything I read calls them something different, but they seem to do almost the same thing. Can you guys cast some light on the subject? Thanks again, fellas. (laughs) (laughs) I love puns. You'll always reach my heart with puns. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So refractories all will have a rating. Basically, there's two things you want to look for in a refractory. There are other factors, obviously, but there's two things that you want to look for. 
first one is the temperature that it is rated to withstand, um, which for a forge, you want at least 1350 Celsius, mm-hmm. really, at least. 1600 Celsius would be perfect. Um, and then you want the, the density of it. Um, depends on what you're going to be doing with your forge. If you're going to be carrying your forge around, you might want a light castable refractory um, because dense castable refractories, while much more durable, um, they weigh a lot. It also depends on your burner setup because like a dense castable refractory takes a lot longer to heat up like the forge oh, yeah. itself. It's um, for if you're going to be working all day. Yeah, exactly. If you're just going to be working for an hour or two, a light castable is going to be what you want. Um, or like a light insulator, insulator, because obviously you've got stuff like isowool and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. is an incredibly light, a high temperature refractory. Um, when it comes to stuff like Satanite, so Satanite is a um, more of a mortar or a, a clay than a castable refractory. While it can serve as a castable refractory, it's not normally sold as such and tends to be really expensive for that purpose. It's usually a coating. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's usually sell, sold as a coating, much like RTZ and stuff like that, um, rather than a castable. I've used Satanite as a castable, and it's not very good. <laughs> Would have been because expensive. It's incredible. Yeah, it's incredibly dense, and it's incredibly uh, fine particulate because it's because it's designed as a coating. It's incredibly fine powder. Uh, most castable refractories tend to be a little bit larger in the aggregate, um, so. Well, depends on the on the density. Obviously, the lower the density, the larger the aggregate. My favorite castable, <laughs> if you can find it, uh, but I do post box forges. So this is for if you are building a small internal volume post box forge. Um, is it's called Shiracast One Sixty AR Shiracast. It's uh, there's several Shiracasts, but I use the One Sixty AR. But I do. Because I do post box forges, the internal volume is tiny compared to um, something like a like a nine liter gas bottle forge that you would have. You know, the, the whole fire brick in front of the door. <laughs> and um, very different it, setup. In some cases, you can get away without any castable at all. If you're doing something like a nine kilo gas bottle forge, you can literally use uh, a basic f- um, fire mortar to just hold the hard fire brick in the bottom for your floor. Um, mm. And you don't need to worry about castable refractories. But yeah, like when it comes to castable refractories, there are a million different companies making a million different products. They're all basically the same thing. As you said, as Alex said, the main two things are temperature rating and density. Yeah. So the higher the density, that helps. <laughs> the higher the density, the longer it lasts, the lower the density, the high, faster it gets hot. Yeah. It's you find what works for you in your setup. Um, next email comes from Xavier. It says, hi, Sam and Alex. I'm a homeschooling 16-year-old country boy who has nothing better to do than create things. Thanks to you guys, I've been spending the past year stepping up my game with knife making. I have been in the habit of giving away all my practice knives and have slowly seen my improvement. However, I am starting to notice that the work I'm producing is starting to hurt more and more to give away. I'm wondering what your transitions were from practice knives to sellers. I know I'm young, so I should should I just sit tight for a while? This also applies to my blacksmithing work. I am now finally caught up with the episodes and will hopefully be participating in the challenges. Awesome. The more the merrier. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you want it's to take a, this one it's, a, it's a hard question to answer, really, because it depends on a lot of factors, really. I mean, first of all, 
I hope you are testing your knives because a knife-shaped object and a knife that can withstand the uh, what you would put it through uh, for its job and do more, uh, obviously, uh, is an actual knife. And so how old you are is irrelevant. Um, look at how young Kyle Royer was when he started. It, yeah, look well, at Alex Steele. Yeah, or look at the youngsters like Jason Allard who does it just stupidly phenomenal work just incredible and he's so young and he's still young but he started when he was really young yeah he does phenomenal work for i mean he hasn't been doing it that long in the scheme of things but at the same time in that time he's done a lot so you look at some people who have been doing it for like this is the thing i see on fortune fire you'll see a competitor go on there and it's like been doing nice for 12 years and then you look up their instagram and it, it does not look like this work of somebody who's been doing it for 12 years. And then you look at somebody who's been doing it for six months and they've just got the gift and it's just picked it up and they're, they're doing incredible work. So what it comes down to is does it perform properly as a knife, what you're doing? It's got nothing to do with the age and it's got nothing to do with how long you've been doing it. Does it perform its duties as a knife? Is it going to be a reliable thing for the person who is going to be the new owner for it? Um, and that's it, really. It doesn't matter, like, the, the looks of a knife, so long as it performs it ta- its tasks, are subjective. Obviously, certain profiles are designed for certain tasks, as Sam and I have ranted about extensively in the mm. past, um, and will again. <laughs> We're not done with those rants. <laughs> Never. Um, but... It's really what it comes down to is does it perform the task and and will it stand up to a certain, a a reasonable amount of torture? Obviously, there are people who say, no, your knife should be able to be batoned through steel nails. Otherwise, it's not a real knife. It's like, yeah, we're talking about about a pocket knife here. It's not really an expected (laughs) thing for a knife to be able to do. Like, the only thing I would say is, like, if you're doing blacksmithing work as well, like hooks and and that kind of thing, start selling with that. Start selling that stuff. Like, Alex Deal started selling blacksmithing work at 13 at, like, local Steak knives. Garden hooks. S hooks. Yeah. Bottle openers. People buy that stuff so fast. And you'll get a name for yourself in the community, like, your local community especially, um selling the smaller stuff and it's much easier to move because you can charge like a dollar two dollars whatever and it's gonna move actual product the the big thing is is that like when you start out you're not going to be able to charge what things are worth um no matter what you do so you know if you want to start establishing a name for yourself and getting used to the idea of selling stuff sell simple stuff Um, i got started selling hairpins and and necklaces and things like that and it it works you turn up to a, a market with a nice display of that stuff, you can't hold on to it. Yeah. Uh, honestly, hooks. Um, my I used to do like my Celtic blacksmith's knives. Like those were the big knives that I would sell most of the time. It was like the most expensive thing on my table for a while. <laughs> you yeah. Know. Um, but yeah, just, just start with the simple stuff. And if you want to sell knives, sure, go ahead, advertise them. But yeah, make sure that you're standing by your work and pricing them accordingly. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so hopefully that answers your question, Xavier. Uh, our next email comes from Dave. Oh, that's right. This is an interesting one. This is one for you, Sam. 
Uh-oh. Says, Howdy, guys. I'm sure you hear a lot. Uh, as I'm sure you hear a lot, I've been getting some mixed information in my research on heat treatment while trying to improve my knowledge of the why, like Alex is always stressing. You guys have done a great job of explaining what happens to steel during normalization. And I loved Alex's video on shrinking grain. But I have a question that I thought our resident metallurgist, Sam, might be able to shine some light on. So you are a trained metallurgist, Sam. <laughs> well, if Dave says it, it must be true. One thing that confuses me is people on forums talking about the process of thermocycling, which is described in many different ways, but most often as sort of pulsing the steel between just over and then just under critical temperature a few times. Lots of people say to do it and talk about it like it's a distinctly different process to normalization, but no one explains the why. I'm sure our resident metallurgist, Sam, can probably help clear this up for me, hopefully using small words and maybe help out some others who have been confused by this as well. Love the show. Keep up the good work, Dave. I don't know what show you've been listening to. (laughs) Asking me to use small words. What are we talking about? You came to the wrong place, Dave. (laughs) It is an interesting question. And uh, Dave mentions that video that um, I think I think it was him that mentioned the video about the um, the single normalization, um, or that might have been a message to me. I can't remember. I'm getting all of my messages. Uh, that's now. a different email. Right, okay. So someone was on the same topic, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, so thermocycling is one of those things that, like, it's a, it's a phrase that gets bandied about a lot, and no one really seems to know what it is. Yeah. Because when I first started as a bladesmith, and when I first started studying metallurgy, you know, like, I- informally, if you like, um, thermocycling meant normalization, right? Like it meant doing your normalization cycles. That was thermocycling your blade. It was taking it up to therm, like to to your sensitizing temperature, and then letting it cool. Um, so I learned that all all normalization is thermocycling, but not all thermocycling is normalization. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it's it's taken on this weird like there's this um, like spheridizoneal thermocycling where you're actually quenching mm. the blade and then going back into the forge to heat up to austenitizing temperature and then quenching again. And, you know, like there's these, these mun- multiple understandings of the various, you know, quote unquote thermocyclings that we're talking about. And that's why I really hate it as a phrase because it mm. doesn't mean anything. Like all it just basically means is you're cycling the thermal it's an region um, of it's your It's an umbrella steel. term. Yeah. You're, you're cycling the temperature of your steel. That's all you're doing. Um, yeah. Now, pulse cycling is something that I've kind of seen a little bit of, but I don't see any significance to it, like scientifically. I, I get a, a lot of people will say that they do that to refine the grain structure. Yeah, and like I, while I understand that as a, as a principle, like you're taking it to austenitizing temperature and then letting it drop, but you're not letting it drop to room temperature or you're not letting it drop past Martin Site 1 or Martin Site 2, which is, you know, like 450 degrees or so. Hmm. Um. Now, I haven't seen a lot of research, and, and like, admittedly, I am not a metallurgist and I'm not in the field at the time, um, but I haven't seen any research that points to that being, like, a better way of doing things than standard normalization cycles, as far as I can tell. Um, and the only thing I would be concerned about is if you're, if you're sitting around the austenitizing temperature of your steel, that can lead to grain enlargement more than yes. anything. Um Particularly at, with certain steels over others. Yeah, and like simple carbon steels uh, above all. Um, like wills, W2 is really bad for that. Oh yeah, no, you soak that. Like if you soak that for five minutes, you're actually going to increase grain size. Yeah. It is, you do not Irre- soak. Irrevocably. Yeah, you do not soak 
carbon steel knives at temperature. Like uh, uh, austenitizing temperature cycles so- soaks are for stainless knives only, um, and that's to help. Although get the... high vanadium content knives do benefit from it to a certain extent. Yeah, so high alloy knives that have vanadium or chromium in them uh, do benefit from having a little bit of a soak cycle, purely because they're we're talking about like soaking those. Um, vanadium get, carbides yeah to get the carbides down but yeah. your simple carbons like your 1084 and your w1 w2 1095 any of the yeah, 10 in and double X, yeah that's it yeah get it up to critical take it the fuck out um yeah that's it. <laughs> um i was actually i was talking to bruce barnett about it actually because he was asking me about my temperature cycling for w2 and i told him that i cycled it at, like for five minutes at austenitizing and he went nah throw the blade out mm-hmm. <laughs> was, i was like oh crap uh, was early, that was early in my career. Um, but yeah, so as far as like thermal pulsing, I'm not sure that it, there's any value to it over standard normalization, purely because you're running the risk of soaking at austenitizing temperature with a steel that doesn't need it. Mm. Um, and especially if you're not doing it in a controlled environment like a kiln, where you can't actually tell that you're soaking above and at critical temperature, uh, I wouldn't even bother. Um, there's too much chance that you'll just overshoot and end up causing massive grain growth. Mm. Yeah, don't do it. Um, Dur- during my studies of it, I I kept seeing um, that people seem to think that you know bringing it to just above non-magnetic and then letting it cool in air to just until it all of a sudden the magnet starts sticking again and then you stick it in again. They think that that um, uh, relaxes the bonds between the grains. Um, mm-hmm. So. Um, in theory, like if it has been through a heavy forging process with a lot of distortion, they mm. thought it relaxed it more. Um, whereas normalization was separate in that it shrank the grains. Um, okay. That's what I kept hearing. To be honest, when it comes down to it, Sam and I test our knives very thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Like some people would say excessive sometimes. <laughs> um, and they hold up. I yeah. don't, I don't uh, quote unquote thermocycle that pulsing thing. I don't do it. I, I do normalization passes, um, and I do multiples. And we're going to get to that email, Sam, because <laughs> yep. I have thoughts on it, and I'm pretty sure they're the same thoughts as you. Yep. Um, but I, I, I like to normalize two or three times. Um, I do pocket knives most of the time, so really, I can get away with just one. Um, <laughs> Here's my, it. yeah. With my Donfog kiln, I have, like, and doing a lot of testing of the steel and snapping and all that kind of stuff, I can quite comfortably say that I have perfected the heat treat of several of the steels that I work in because I get repeatable, absolute crystalline powder grain. Like, you Mm. cannot see the grain. Perfect hardness. And I'm getting really good results in tempering. So, like, I am very confident in my heat treating now. Yeah. And I do not thermocycle, like not brain in the, structure the, doesn't lie. Let's face uh, it, hell no. Um, and so, like, I'm actually, funnily enough, my thoughts have changed since having a kiln about the whole multiple thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, um, I'm interested to hear that as somebody who is building a kiln. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So, as far as thermocycling goes, I don't see the necessity for it. I don't see that it actually provides anything more useful over normalization. If anything, the only thing that I do that is similar is a flash normalization post uh, post forging, where basically I'll just you know stick it in, get it up to roughly critical, and then let it cool down outside of the forge before I go to the grinder for the first time. 
And that's mostly just to prevent any really nasty, heavy grain growth that might happen before I go to the normalization cycle. Yeah. But it's not necessary. Keep in mind, if you've been watching your soaks, you've been watching your temperatures and you haven't, like let's say you're heat treating a stock removal blade, for example, and you haven't forged it, um, the grain's going to be fairly uh, regular as it is. So you just have to shrink that sucker down. Um, but yeah, like Sam, I, I love working with 1084 and recently I've been getting into ADC AV2, which is just 1084 with the sprinkle of vanadium. Um, and I have refined my heat treatment process for that, um, to the point where I, I, I get the same grain structure that you see in a file, like an old mm-hmm. file that you snap. It looks like just, it looks like gray plastic. Yeah. Looks like I've snapped a bit of plastic. Like I cannot see anything. Now I have taken the time to do that with 1084. And so I use a lot of 1084 because I just, I know my results. But Mm -hmm. if I suddenly was to go and start working with a different steel before I was putting out serious work with that, I would want to actually go through and do those, that experimentation and and find that. So I I recommend that you do that yourself as well, Dave, like find a steel that you're going to be using a lot of, and there are some steels that are very unforgiving, uh, very forgiving in that regard, like 1084, 1080, 1075, they're, they're lovely to work with, uh, 1095, 15 and 20. Um, they're, they're, there's really not much you can do wrong with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's really good. I mean, you said you, uh, you know that I'm always telling you to look at the why, and that's another thing. Like if you're going to be working regularly with the steel, dial in that heat treatment process to get that tight grain and experiment with some things. You know, try thermocycling because your equipment's going to be different to ours. And unless you and I are both using the same brand of kiln to do exacting temperatures and everything, um, we're going to have slight <laughs> we will have slight differences because people like to say you need to do this and this and this with this steel. And unfortunately, if you're using a homemade gas bottle forge. Um, you know, with the dodgy homemade burner in a cold human environment, that's going to work differently. That the what you the steps you have to do to get that tight grain is going to be different to somebody who's using like professional grade equipment in a temperature controlled environment. Mm-hmm. So, it's experiment, have a play with it. So, good question though. Very good that's question. Fantastic question. Thank you. One of the best questions we've had. Yeah, I love it. Well done. You can be proud of that one. Um, <laughs> And then the next one that we've been talking about, he says, hey, guys, I just came across this video and I'm curious on your thoughts. I'm not familiar with Graham Clark. He seems pretty legit, though. It's a little hard to believe that normalizing more than once isn't necessary, as he says. Thanks a bunch. Uh, Jemiah, I think I'm pronouncing that. Graham Clark is legit. He is very legit. That guy knows his stuff. Um, And he's... I like to err on the side of caution. I'm, I know Sam's got something to, to say about this with mm-hmm. the kiln, and I'm actually really interested to hear hear this because I, I don't know this yet. I'm going to be hearing it at the same time as you guys. <laughs> um, but I like to err on the side of caution. I know I can do one normalization pass on you know, most of my stuff because most of my stuff is stock removed these days. I still forge out. Sometimes I, I don't want to do 1084. Sometimes I want to do things that have reclaimed materials and I'll forge them out and I get a bit more persnickety with those. But on stock removed stuff, 
I usually do one, maybe two normalizing passes because it's a pocket knife. There's not much mass mm-hmm. there. When I get that thing up to temperature, that whole thing's at temperature. Um, but if you want to play it safe, you do it multiple times and then we guaranteed to get it all. That's why we temper twice. Mm-hmm. You don't need to temper twice either unless you're doing different temperatures, of course, because that would be, you know, multiple step-up passes. Mm-hmm. Um especially on a very small project like a pocket knife. However, I may be about to be refuted, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so mine, mine comes with a bit of caveats, and it starts with a story. <laughs> this is, it was welcome. a warm summer evening. <laughs> I am I, suddenly becoming one of those people that writes a recipe for like the one of those online <laughs> catalogs where you got to read my entire life it's story. Like, I just wanted to learn how to make creamed rice. <laughs> but actually, no, it, it started with, uh, with Dan Moss. Right, like this whole this whole journey of normalization started with Dan Moss, mm. and that's because he listened to one of our episodes after he came on the show, um, where he didn't understand the whole idea of the the three step normalization process, where you where you're like above critical, at critical, and then just yeah. below critical. And we were we were talking about it. He's like, "What's the reasoning for this?" Right, and I I didn't actually know at the time. Like I was basically just repeating what I'd been told. Yeah. And so I immediately went on a journey <laughs> to try and figure out the fuck is going on. Darkest Asia. During my experimentation with that, Niels Vandenberg himself posted a story where he showed the results of a single normalization pass on the same piece of steel. Like he sh- he snapped a piece of steel, showed the grain structure, then did a normal- single normalization pass and showed the steel structure afterwards, right? And the mm. grain was absolutely perfect. Like, absolutely perfect. Mm minutely perfect and in the story he said you do not need to do multiple passes and i was kind of like okay this guy knows what he's talking about and he's shown some evidence so now what's Mm. the actual story so (laughs) um i did a whole bunch of testing on my own with my gas forge at the time that didn't have temperature control or anything like that and so i was kind of basically doing it by eye and i was getting some mixed results like i was getting a little bit of here and there mostly getting good grain refinement on my first pass and then just slight slight improvement on the second one slight enough that it could have been subjective yeah yeah honestly it was it was hard to tell but then i got a kiln and i had perfect temperature control in the don fog kiln and i started doing some real testing and this was with sword blades so like you know we're talking big pieces of steel that i'm beating Mm. pretty hard Every one of the sword blades that I've made so far after the first one has only been normalized once and has had perfect crystalline grain structure every time. Mm. Now, So I don't have to feel guilty anymore when I... No, so now it, now it comes to... This is why it's like... This one comes with a caveat. If you have temperature-controlled kiln, right? A temperature-controlled kiln of any kind and yeah. can guarantee that you're at the temperature that is required for austenitizing then another normalization cycle should not be necessary, right? Because the yep. grains that grain refinement cycle only requires one pass. Yep. The reason that the three-step process was originally implemented is because we're talking about people who are heat treating in a place that does not have temperature control. And, and so... Oh, Sam, Sam, this is bringing <laughs> up a thing that makes me rage. This uh-huh. is lighting the fire in me, Sam. I've got to cut you off. <laughs> okay, go for it. And I know you've... I know you rage out about this as well. Of course I do. When the people, like, the Curie temperature of different alloys of steel is different. 
Yes. People don't realize this. They think the Curie temperature of the and people will go out there and be like, you know, steel gets non-magnetic critical. It doesn't. <laughs> I don't think there is any type of steel alloy that actually goes critical at non-magnetic. Not it's all just aware- over. Yeah, it's not to my awareness. And depending on the alloy, the swing of temperature could be as much as 40, 50 degrees. Celsius. Which, <laughs> Celsius, yeah. Now, here's the thing that makes me rage. You see people holding their knife in there, just watching the color. And we've, all, we've ranted about how color is subjective <laughs> as well, by the way. Um, and they'll pull it out and they'll test it with a magnet and say, that's non-magnetic. Thus, it's at the critical temperature. <laughs> Steel continues to be non-magnetic all the way past (laughs) critical to melting point. Yep, pretty much. Liquid metal is not magnetic (laughs) either. So if you are going to be looking for the critical temperature using a magnet, check it regularly. I'm talking every few seconds. Hallelujah. Every few seconds. (laughs) Amen. Okay? Don't just be like, non-magnetic, herp de derp (laughs) If you want, if you think that that's too much to take on board and that's too stressful, which I understand some people get stressed out when you're new and you're going for the quench and everything, take a pinch of salt, put it on a little bit of steel and sit it in your forge and watch the pile of salt. Mm -hmm. The salt will turn into a liquid almost the exact same temperature that the steel becomes non-magnetic provided you have good heat transference and the entirety of the forge is at about the same temperature so put it right right where the blade is Mm -hmm. and obviously the size of the blade is going to dictate one part of it might be at critical and the other part might not be and i i highly suggest doing it if you're using a forge do it in a muffle so put a big tube in there so that there's Mm. not direct heat from the flame so that it's only radiant heat heating the blade because if there's a for like a flame on it then obviously the salt is going to melt before the blade is at temperature yeah plus you get to have a giggle about using the word muffle yeah but yeah steel (laughs) continues to be (laughs) non-magnetic okay the amount of times that i have said this like i i have screamed this at screens watching youtube videos where people have pulled out blades literally burned like the edge is sparkling like a freaking firecracker yeah. and someone's gone yeah. magnet, magnet, dunk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I scream at the screen watching Forged in Fire like people do at sports games. <laughs> like people will bring out something that is white. Yeah. I mean, freaking white, but only, Smoke, in the, smoking. but only in half of the blade. Yeah. And they'll quench it pull it out so they get the fireball and file test it while it's still glowing red. Yeah, it's insane. It's still non-magnetic while you're freaking <laughs> file testing it. Okay, <sighs> so coming back to the original point, the reason the three-step process was originally imp- implemented from what I can tell was that it was counteracting the unreliability of temperature control within the standard forge. Mm. So it would tell you, first one, 50 degrees above critical, right? So 1550, 15, you know, like 1560 Fahrenheit. The second one, at critical. And then the third one, 50 degrees below critical. And the reason for this is because basically you're bracketing the critical temperature. And the idea was, is that most people overshoot critical temperature by about 100 degrees. 
So by the time you do the third normalization cycle with that quote unquote low, you know, like below critical, you're actually dead on critical, which mm. means that that last normalization cycle is actually the one that's limiting your grain size. Right. Yeah. And so that's why the whole three pass normalization was originally invented. The reason that um, I no longer use the three pass system is twofold. One, it's unnecessary purely because I get the grain structure that I need out of one normalization cycle. And two, it doesn't decarb my blades. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because uh, with ADC RV2s especially, it is incredibly yeah. prone to decarb. And so I was concerned. And like when I start when I saw um, Graham's video and I like was doing all this research, I was kind of like, if I can limit the amount of decarburization I have in normalization then I have to worry less about the after effects of, you know, like pre-grinding my blades before I heat treat. And so it was an amazing step for my process because I don't have access to stuff like PCP anti-scaling anti compound and all that kind of stuff. PCB anti-scaling compound and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it was a huge step for me. So no, normalization is not required for more than um, one pass, but also... Yes, it is, if you don't have perfect temperature control. Yeah, so um, Sam and I love Graham Clark's content. He, he speaks the true, true. Um, guy really knows what he's talking about. So, um, yeah, it's interesting, though, because uh, I am building a uh, temperature-controlled kiln, very small one um, at the moment, uh, especially now that I've got refractory. So I'll be able to actually leave the caveman days of trying to eyeball everything in a gas forge. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And also not having to stand there heat treating 16 knives um, because that doing that in a gas forge sucks. Let's it really does. It, it really sucks. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, by, by all means, uh, hedge your bets and, you know, do your multiple normalization passes because like it doesn't actually hurt anything. Um, and especially if you're only using a forge, definitely. But um, yeah, it's not necessary. No. All right. <clears throat> Next email comes from Steve Ellis. And he says, hello, fellas. I purchased Alex's slip joint class. Oh, thank you. Uh, and we'll be attempting to make some soon. But I was wondering if aluminium would be a good material for the liners or if it is too soft. I have some pieces that are about three mil thick and thought it might work, but not sure if it will last. Love the show. and looking forward to making some folders. Thanks. Um, first off, thank you for buying the slip joint course. I've been getting some very good feedback from it. Um, but aluminium is tougher than people think. Um, it's, it's surprisingly tough. Depending on the grade, there are different grades of aluminium. Uh, mm -hmm. People don't realize that. They just think aluminium is aluminium, probably because of it's a chemical element. But uh, <laughs> what we experience as aluminium when we get metal stock is not pure aluminium. It is a no, it's an alloy. aluminium alloy. Uh, it, is, it is amazingly strong for its weight incredibly strong and fairly wear resistant compared to other non-ferrous metals like copper and brass um, the biggest problem with aluminium is that a lot of alloys of it not all of them but a lot of them oxidize and tarnish incredibly rapidly leaving a very ugly look they also gall really fast like unlike yeah. copper and stuff they really pick up pills and then start like creating scars on themselves really easily however if you were to make a slip joint with aluminium liners providing it's a decent alloy i don't know what alloy you're using if you were to use the dreaded washers 
in your mm. slip joint, um, you'd probably mitigate most of the problems that you would have, to be honest. Yep. Um, I know Sam hates the thought of washers. I am... The traditionalist in me balks, but yes, they, <laughs> they would prevent the problems that you would come up to with galling. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for working with what you got, um, and especially when you're when you're first learning slip joints, use whatever you've got. I've actually seen slip joints done where the handle scales are just solid G10. There's no metal mm-hmm. lining in them at all, and you know that's perfectly fine. It's a lighter duty knife than uh, something that's got brass liners, um, but no less functional as a pocket knife uh, at, at all. So. Yeah, I mean, I have a, a friction folder that was made by uh, Michael Morris over in America that's got uh, just micata, canvas mm. micata scales, no liners. Yeah. yeah, I mean, liners liners are optional on a folding knife. It just comes down to um, toughness, really. Liners uh, mm. provide phenomenal amount of uh, reinforcement to the pivot point, and, and that's all that um, their, their purpose is, aside from aesthetic, obviously. Um, so... Yeah, give it a go. Aluminium will work fine. I would recommend washers, though, the dreaded washers. Just to, uh, remember, if you're going to be using washers in a slip joint, you have to uh, make your blade um, thinner than your backspring by the thickness of those two washers. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you will get unsightly gapping. So, bit of pro tip for you. Uh, next email comes from uh, Michael. And he says, hello, Alex and Sam. I recently got into blacksmithing and bladesmithing and wanted to make a blacksmith knife for my sister. My plan is to give the polish, the blade and I think he's written that wrong. I think it's my plan is to polish the blade and brass brush it. Is there a way that I can heat it up enough to brass brush it without forming forge scale and ruining the finish? And should I temper slash heat treat it and then add the brass? Thanks for your time. I look forward to hearing from you sincerely, Michael. I've got some bad news for you, Michael. (laughs) I'm sorry, mate. The temperature at which brass brushing works because you're actually melting off little bits of the brass will ruin the temper of your knife. Um, Mm -hmm. Although... It'll come out of the temper if you do it right. It's a nice straw gold color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and unfortunately, even if you brass brushed it before you heat treated it, the temperature at which you heat treat would literally just vaporize the brass off the surface. Yeah. Uh, and when you shame. quenched it, it would all just pop off anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, brass brushing your blade isn't going to be possible. I'll give you a. I'll give you a, a hint though. If you if you're feeling daring, um, make the thing. Heat treat the thing, grind the thing, etc., etc. Clean it all up, then wrap the blade in a wet rag and use like a, a map gas torch to heat up the handle and mm. brass brush the handle. Mm, that'd be good. It'll protect the Stick water. The, the wet cloth will protect the temper of the blade. Stick it in a vice with the with a wet cloth around the blade. A lot of wet cloth, like I mean, at least yep. like half a centimeter of wet cloth. <laughs> yeah. Um, and That's keep the spray bottle handy to keep wetting the cloth as you go because you do need to get to like a, a dull red, a very dull red heat uh, to do a successful brass, brass brushing. But then you'll have a golden handle, especially if you put some like twists, particularly mm. I think rope twists, otherwise known as chisel twists, look phenomenal with brass brushing. Yeah, or uh, in, interrupted twists as well, like yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. double double stack twists. Yeah, they're nice. Absolutely. And then you'll have a nice golden sheen to your handle, but your blade will be protected. So keep that uh, as a 
an attempt in your back pocket. So. I suddenly had a, like an idea of like, could you brass electroplate a blade? Yes. That would be interesting. It would be. It probably wouldn't be particularly durable. Electroplating no, a thin like, coat, but it would be cool. I mean, it would be no thicker than brass brushing, I suppose. But, you know, it was, it was just a thing that came to my brain. I was yeah. <laughs> Give it a go. Why For not? a showpiece, I suppose it would look cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so hopefully that, hopefully you give that a go, Michael. If you do give that a go and you're daring enough, then uh, send us a photo. We'd love to see it. Uh, next email comes from Jake, and he says, Hey, guys, well, it happened. I went to Blade Show and got rebitten by the bug to start making knives again. I've decided to start planning now for the 48-hour dagger challenge. I'm looking <laughs> to do similar to Alex and make my first attempt at a Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife. When it comes to historical builds, can you guys go to find information... Uh, oh, where do you guys go to find information on measurements and whatnot? I've done a good bit of digging, but I mostly end up finding grainy old diagrams or articles with partial information. Any help you guys can provide would be much appreciated. Thanks for everything. Jake, now that is uh, an interesting question because the Fairbairn Sykes knife has been copied by so many different people. Um, oh, the originals yeah. are made in Sheffield and have always been made in Sheffield and will always be made in Sheffield. Um, <laughs> I have a close connection with the Fairbairn Sykes knife because my mentor showed me his. Um, and the interesting thing about the Fairbairn Sykes knife, despite being incredibly delicate feeling when you actually hold it, like really delicate, like it, is, it feels like you're holding a bit of plastic, but it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very lethal dagger designed for killing humans. Um, the spine thickness or the, the apex thickness at mm-hmm. the actual hilt is like six mil. Mm-hmm. It's thick, but it's a yeah. perfect diamond um, profile. It's, it's all four bevels are flat ground. Um, mm-hmm. And so the distal taper that that forms on such a slender blade means that it gets very thin very quickly. Um, yes, it's but, basically a very sharp spike. Yeah, I have seen others that are eight mil thick at the base. Mm. Daggers um, are quite norm- normally quite thick, like at mm. the at the base, purely because they're designed for thrusting, and so you want a lot of rigidity. Yeah, um, and Fairbairn Sykes knives are actually you, most of the time, if you find a historical one, it's got the tip broken off because they're so <laughs> light that a lot of people found them after the Cold War and that, and, and thought, "Hey, Use them throwing patents, <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing." But they're just not designed for that. They're designed for piercing larynxes. Mm-hmm. As far as like historical daggers and stuff like that, and where I get like me gets, I get my um, references from. In some cases, I'm just looking at like um, museum catalogs uh, from like the Tower of London or the uh, Wallace Muse- uh, Wallace Collection. They both have catalogs online that you can Wallace look at. Collection's a good one. <clears throat> yeah, you can look at daggers and stuff like that. They've got an entire catalog. Um, also, antiques, um, uh, antiques resale, like antiques um, for like uh, what is it? Fucking auctions and stuff like that a lot of antique auction sites have like historical examples that are being sold and when they sell them they add every measurement known to man <laughs> underneath the uh, listing 
that has been incredibly helpful for me, especially with swords and stuff like that. They'll give you length, blade dimensions of all kinds, handle dimensions, handle construction, um, you know, uh, down to like what the sheath is made of and how it was made. So that has been incredibly helpful for me. Otherwise, it's just literally been scanning through endless amounts of, you know, historical papers from the Wallace Collection and the Tower of London and the Kemen, uh, the Kepler Museum and all those. Yeah. So good luck with the Fairbairn Sykes. It is a deceptively complex dagger to make. Um, yes. If you want added difficulty, know that the balance point should be exactly where your index finger sits. Mm-hmm. Just behind the guard. Mm-hmm. Um, when you toss it from hand to hand, it should not try and go over end. It should just spin in the air. Um, so next email comes from Lee Allen. And Lee says, hello and good morning from Chicago area. I have a question. I recently picked up an old, well-used cross-peen hammer from an antique shop. I've replaced the handle my first attempt doing one but the face of the head is well used and mushroomed. I haven't used it yet. Should I redress the face or leave it alone? Also, I just finished episode 52, loving the show. Thanks. Well, it might be a while before you hear this response, Lee. <laughs> if you're only yeah, and, to do. And like, if, if, if it is a while, I'm very sorry for your lost eye. Uh, if you decided to use that hammer before you dressed <laughs> it. Um, really, the rule for hammers is not only should you always dress your hammers, you should keep them dressed. Mm-hmm. No I, I would here. I would say that the that um, the hammer that you sent the photo of is beyond use. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. It it's got cracks in the face and heavy mushrooming on both ends, and I wouldn't actually be sure that it still has a hardened face. Um, with the amount of some, mushrooming that it had, yeah. Some of the some of the old hammers were either case hardened or had a very thin, forge welded hardened face, and if in order for it to have mushroomed that much, you must have got past that. Yeah, been redressed um, a few times and busted past yeah. it, or it was like lost in a fire or something, and someone decided to use it as a soft face mallet for using on like wedges for chopping trees down. Maybe. But yeah, it it is uh, unfortunately like while you've done a pretty decent job, it looks like of handling the hammer. I think that hammer is a good one to hang on the wall. Unfortunately, yeah, maybe use it for some decoration for your forge. Um, yeah. That people don't understand the dangers that hammers actually um, <clears throat> present. Uh, and if you don't believe me, look up any of the various YouTube videos where they strike two hammers together mm-hmm. and see just. I think MythBusters did an episode on it. Um, you can see just how much violence a, ca- a hammer going wrong can be capable of. Uh, knowing, having known someone who ended up having to get surgery on their femoral artery because they had a piece of hammer embed them, embed itself in their femoral artery. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm always very careful when it comes to my hammer faces. At this point, I'd like to point out that Nordic Edge sells leather blacksmithing aprons. It's <laughs> yeah. a good idea. <laughs> they help protect your femoral artery. Yes. If every everybody that's listening right now and cringing and feeling all like at the thought of shards of steel piercing their femoral artery, um, they're probably rushing to Nordic Edge website. I mean, given given that your femoral artery is about two inches away from other parts of your anatomy that you might not Mm. want pierced by a very high velocity piece of steel, an apron's a good idea. Yeah, unless you're into docking. I mean, well, 
<laughs> I just invoked docking on the podcast. <laughs> anyway. It was a sounding success. <laughs> no, God. <laughs> Next email is from Ben Smith, and he says, hope you guys are well. Uh, I apologize in advance for any confusing wording as I'm trying to write this while it's on my mind at work. So to start off, I've heard Sam mention the dishwasher being terrible for knives as well as other sources. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me as to why it would be bad, though. I can make some educated guesses, but uh, the first thing that comes to mind is heat. I wouldn't think that dishwashers get hot enough to affect the temper of a blade, but it is possible. It's not. Uh, the second would be prolonged water exposure, especially combined with heat, which can accelerate oxidation. This seems more likely, though, a lot of kitchen knives tend to be uh, a stainless type steel, so are more corrosion resistant. Finally, it could be the soaps used in dishwashers. I'm not sure exactly if there's a chemical makeup of detergents that can affect either the blades or their coatings in a profound way, but it is another potentiality. I'm just curious what which of these it may be or if it's something else entirely that I didn't think of and would just love to know for my own edification. I would... Oh, he's not done yet. We're only a third of the way through. Can we can we stop there and just... Into, like, I'll interject. Okay. This is in no way directed at you, Ben, but for God's sake, do not put your fucking knives in the dishwasher. We get this from clients so often. Oh, ben, you have no I have, idea. So the thing is, the thing is, the blade is the least of your problems. It's the handle. There is another, yeah, there's another part of the knife. It's the handle. And water, hot, soapy water is incredibly good at capillary action and will seep underneath your handle scales. That is where the corrosion happens, even on a stainless knife. It'll also soak into your handle materials, which are Mm. usually going to be wood on a handcrafted knife, and it's going to peel up off your knife. Or it's going to crack the horn if it's horn handled or, you Mm -hmm. know. Even G10 and stuff like that can uptake some moisture when soaked for long periods of time with a... Especially at heat. Yeah, with a soap as well. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I'm going to make a noise right now, and imagine this being the edge of your knife. <laughs> washing machines tend to move steel around a lot, and most of the washing machine is made of steel. Or dishwasher, yeah. Yeah, and, and normally when people throw knives in the dishwasher, they're not putting them like alone on a single shelf surrounded by nothing else. In normally the they're throwing bucket. them Yeah, or next to the plates. Surrounded <laughs> plates, yeah. Let's just bash our knife against the plate and the cutlery and stuff and hope that it still cuts. Also, Ben, you'll remember a few episodes ago I used a uh, an incorrect but correct enough for the, the purpose description of a steel having a, a slightly porous surface. Um, mm-hmm. that we fill with oil all of those little divots we like to fill with oil and that creates a nice coating of oil on the knife uh soap warm soapy water is one of the best most thorough ways to clean the oil off a knife yeah it's actually <laughs> it's, the best way to clean it before etching it in acid it's yeah that's what i was actually going to say next like um <laughs> if you are when you are going to be etching a damascus steel knife everyone's like acetone windex yeah. brake cleaner all this sort of thing. warm soapy water is the king of all of these things especially thoroughly cleaned mm. with warm soapy water and you know what dishwashers are really good <laughs> at doing thoroughly cleaning <laughs> thoroughly cleaning so not only it's not as simple as 
oh, I'll just re-oil it when it comes back out of the dishwasher because what you'll be doing is putting a coating of oil on top of all of those little pockets in the steel surface of the steel mm-hmm. that are now filled with warm, soapy water. You can't yeah. see it. But I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you this. Take a, a knife that has been, just come out of the dishwasher and try and wipe it dry with like a, <laughs> a, uh, a, a, just a dish towel. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to. And it's because it's you would be drying a dry. You would need something like paper towel to get it mm. fully dry, and then it would have to be oiled and go through all this process and all that sort of thing. What, you could just as thoroughly wipe it down with a damp cloth mm-hmm. that has been dampened in warm soapy water. You could just do that, and, and then your as... handle doesn't get soaked and steamed. You, do, yeah. you, you don't get water get put up under the, between the handle and the 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 spine of the knife it's yeah not to mention um the the heat might not be enough to detemper your blade but any epoxy that you may have used they don't like heat like most epoxies hate heat and 60 degrees is all it takes to remove uh the bond of most general epoxies put it this way would you put a bucket (laughs) of warm soapy water into the center the floor on the center of a sauna (laughs) <laughs> and then walk into that sauna while it's going, carrying your knife and a ceramic plate, put them in the bucket of water and just shake them around because that's what a dishwasher's doing. If you would not do that with your knife as part of its regular care routine, don't put it in a dishwasher. And I will say that stainless knives, especially uh, martensitic stainless knives that are used to create cutlery, stainless does not mean waterproof. Stain never. Yeah, it's like Mari Carter always says it'll stain less than other steels, but it still bloody rusts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and having rehandled several Wusthof knives, because that used to be part of my business, was rehandling old kitchen knives. The amount of rusty Wusthof tangs I've seen from people constantly uh, washing machine cycling their Wusthof and it, all of the water just getting under that plastic mm-hmm. and rusting the crap out of the handle. Yeah, just don't do it, please. Yeah. And I mean, some of the beautiful, <coughs> I think, like I'm a huge wood nerd and some of the gorgeous pieces of wood that I have lovingly shaped and polished and buffed and waxed into beautiful states to think of one of them left to soak in a dishwasher. And people usually mm-hmm. set that thing going after dinner and then go to bed and yep. take it out in the morning. It's just sat there. It is disrespectful My- to a handmade item. I once sold a knife. It was one of the first knives I ever put stabilized wood on the handle. Someone put it in the dishwasher and they tried to bring it back to me to get it fucking replaced. The blade was solid rust because they did. They put it in overnight and then they left it for two days because they forgot about it. Yeah. The handle had cracked because even though it's stabilized timber, you've got to remember those fibers are still capable of taking up water. If the surface protector, if the surface protection is gone, which any kind of wax, oil, any kind of finish is getting stripped off that thing by the washing machine. Even a like, cyanoacrylate finish can be beaten <laughs> off by the motion of inside of a dishwasher. I am sorry if you feel like a whipping boy right now, Ben, but this is something that like haunts the nightmares My of most up. knife makers. My blood's up. <laughs> like this is this is like the ultimate knife maker's nightmare is someone telling them <laughs> that they've put their knife in a fucking dishwasher. <laughs> you know what it is. Sam, Sam and I are probably old enough to, to remember this. We grew up in the generation where 
Um, our mum had the good china that mm-hmm. we, on, we only brought out for, you know, guests coming over and things like that. We weren't allowed to use the good china. Mm-hmm. Um, that good china did not go in the dishwasher. <laughs> Hell no. If you got caught, you would get whooped. <laughs> like I'm telling you, whooped. Like you, you, you are... would see see the other side of the planet. Yeah, you would get whooped so hard, you'd see God, and he would be mad. <laughs> so, because we grew up with that mentality that there are certain things you just don't put in the dishwasher. Look, modern technology has not caught up yet with handmade <laughs> knives. It's been trying for a thousand years, and it has not succeeded. Mm-hmm. There is not a machine made that can properly and safely clean a handmade knife. No, and even like any any like chef's knife that you're using, any edged cutlery that you're using that has to maintain an edge should not be going in the washing machine. Purely for that first reason of like the jingling keys, remember? Mm. Don't smack your edge against hard stuff. Just don't do that. <laughs> like, I don't, I, yeah, I'm just... It takes five seconds to just scrub it off with a soapy fucking sponge and then wipe it di- wipe it dry and oil it like it does yeah. not take hard long it's really a, it's it's just getting to the routine yeah anyway we're going to go on to the rest of your email sorry that got that really got me <laughs> if, if he talks about going past non magnetic though <laughs> Uh, he says, I know this is long already, I'm sorry. So for my second question, this one is a bit out there and is either genius or completely fucking stupid and I will be made fun of for it. So I've <laughs> been trying to think of ways to generate more heat in a forge and also lower the oxygen content inside. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> Sam and I, you should see our Oh, man. Oh, man. I don't even know what's coming <laughs> I just hear oxygen and forges and all I can you think is that guy. That's pure oxygen. <laughs> anyway, okay. I'm good. So, so I wonder how crazy and or stupid it would be to try to make a dual fuel forge. Now, just stay mm-hmm. with me on this one for a moment. We're, we're, we're with then, you. We're, we're then you can you. yell at me to just use better slash more refractory because I know it's the biggest variable in a forge. But mm-hmm. imagine if you had a propane forge that's maybe a little larger than normal, that's almost encapsulating a solid fuel forge. So the heat from the forge running will naturally try to burn the coal, right? Though, because most of the oxygen is being consumed by the propane combustion, there won't be enough to keep the coal burning hot. Although, I wonder if the hot coals will still add enough fuel to use any extra oxygen from running an O2-rich flame to allow for higher heat while also preventing excess decarbon scale built up. On a scale of 1 to 10, uh, a scale of 1 to what the hell is wrong with you, sorry. How bad of an idea <laughs> do you think this would be? I know I can control the flow rates of the burners, but I like coming up with solutions to things that aren't a problem. I apologize again for such a long email, and I hope you're both well. Sam, I hope I might get to meet you next year for Blade Show. I'll have to just play it by ear and see if I can get time for it. If you guys don't mind emails like this, I'm sure I can come up with more mad science. Um, Go for on it. A, on a scale of, <laughs> we always need a laugh. On a scale of one to what the hell was wrong with you, I would. Um, I'd, I'd I give wouldn't you a solid quite. Watch. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, guys. He's not. While he is skirting is, the edge of like something that is actually a technique. He is. He is 
brushing the underbelly fur of the creature that is a, a thing. Now, Sam, this is going to be testing the memory of some of our listeners. Sam once <laughs> described an amazing postbox forge setup that actually was hollow underneath. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it had a lid on top and the door was like a normal postbox forge, but the bottom just dumped out into nothingness and suspended under that nothingness was a charcoal fire going mm-hmm. over charcoal i believe it was or coal yes yeah, just charcoal yeah but it created a, a much more pure reducing atmosphere on the inside mm-hmm. of the forge so it was not in the forge being burnt by the forge it was a separate coal fire underneath that was mm-hmm. burning um so maybe reiterate that because this has gone back to like double digit episodes I can, I'm surprised you remember, actually. Like, I have an eidetic <laughs> memory. I remember everything. Well, this is true. Okay. Yeah. I, I forget that sometimes because I don't have an I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> God, this, is, this has been an episode. <sighs> oh, man. Yeah. But yeah, um, maybe describe that and he can build that. Yeah. So um, basically, so the whole idea is that the, it, the, the charcoal itself doesn't provide um, any more energy and you can do this in a normal post box forge you can just throw some charcoal in there and occasionally i do it myself because much like when you throw a little bit of charcoal powder in the uh sealed uh stainless steel tool wrap when you're doing heat treating in order to soak up that little excess oxygen that was around the blade that's what the charcoal does in the forge right so if you throw in a couple of lumps of charcoal into the bottom of your forge it will eat up whatever oxygen is coming out through the burner. Now, in my friend's case, what he had was a little basket underneath the forge that had uh, a bunch of charcoal in it close to the bottom, but not actually in the forge itself. And it was eating up all that extra oxygen. And also it was a fo- it was a flux catcher, basically. It was the, the charcoal would catch the flux rather than having a solid bottom that would catch the flux instead. Um, and yeah, all it does is that the any excess oxygen is obviously caught by the, the charcoal and turned into CO2 instead. So you're not losing any, um, you're not gaining any heat, but you're losing oxygen, which means that you can have a much more neutral fire. Um, in the case of like a bigger forge where you're trying to create more heat in a bigger area, you just need a bigger burner or more burners. Yeah. Um, and yes, you can tune the flame. Like, you know, I'm glad that you pointed that out because, you know, like obviously that is the answer is either a bigger burner and tune the flame or just, you know, <laughs> just chuck for, a couple of in. Forge burners are like Voltron. <coughs> the more you hook up, the better it gets. And when you said dual for, for, uh, fuel, I thought you were going to go the way of like diesel burners, like the diesel mm. forges or the or oil burning oil. forges. Yeah. Those which, are cool. Which, oh, yeah, they're an amazing thing. And Peter Burt's done a lot of them with like foundry work for making woots because it's mm. much more fuel efficient. Um, and you start them on propane or LPG and get them up to temperature, and then you switch over to diesel, which is much, you know, uh, much richer, much, uh, you know, much heavier in uh, calories per ounce. Um, so you know, like that is a thing. Dual forge, for, uh, dual forge fuels for that, and because you've got more energy per liter, basically, um, you got more heat. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, as far as your idea of, like, having a dual forge where you're actually using the, ch- the coal or the charcoal to actually heat anything, nah, not so much. Yeah. Anyway, we'll roll on to our final email because it is past midnight and I am, I am flagging. 
We have been <laughs> suffering some serious technical difficulties through this episode as well, so I would like to thank Alex in advance for all the editing work he's got to do before he oh, uploads yeah. this. i got to get up in the morning and do that as well. Like I this have barely our... slept the last three nights. And this is our third this is our third recording of this one episode. Like we we've had to record in like three segments purely because you can't the really fucking hear thing it kept cutting out. I use quite a nice microphone, but there's a raging <laughs> storm going on outside and <laughs> it just keeps dying on me because I live in the middle of bumblefuck nowhere. Meanwhile, so, we're getting off on tangents about Star Wars and getting angry yeah. about random shit. So yeah. That's it. Anyway, final email. Danny writes, Hi guys, big fan. The amount of information and inspiration you've given the community over the years is amazing. So thank you. You're welcome, Danny. Says, yeah. I have a question about exterior finishes. I want to forge some railings for my houseboat. It's on inland water, so don't need to worry about salt. But it obviously is a very wet environment. I've always been taught that if you want something outside long term without rust, your only option is galve. But that covers up beautiful luster of a forged steel, and I'm hoping there is something clear I can do. I'm planning to experiment with yacht varnish and maybe laminating epoxy. Wondering if either of you had any ideas. All the best and keep up the amazing work. Danny, um, you Thanks, already Danny. took the words out of my mouth. I would have said if you're working on a boat, then go to a marine supplier and get the, the epoxy that they use to coat the outside of boats. It's 100%. Just that. get it clean. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the only, yeah, those are the two answers would be marine grade varnish or epoxy. Epoxy better than varnish. Um, the only other thing I could think of is like Japaning, um, which is a process by which you use Rub uh, Japanese tar. people all over it. <sighs> anyway, look up Japaning. Um, it, it won't preserve the actual forge finish, but it still looks forged. It's what they used to use for a lot of wrought iron work in like gates and stuff. Mm. Um, and it's very water resistant. So, um, that could be another way to go about it, but it's a lot more time intensive than just using epoxy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, yeah. you, you could use traditional finishes, um, and maintain them, but that, like you said, that wet environment is going to mean that you're going to have to maintain them very, very regularly um, another yep. thing to think of is that um if controlled oxidation can be beautiful in and of itself mm, that's true it's a look but yeah but you you already hit the nail on the head really that laminating epoxy or your varnish will, will do marine varnish will do the job splendidly yep yeah so um with that that is our monstrous list of emails finally done um <laughs> Thank you have, to those who sent them in, because some of them are very interesting. We have been having some people attempt the Forgecast challenge and learning um, just how difficult it actually is to forge a horseshoe from scratch. Mm. Um, so uh, in terms of cleanliness of design, Seth Wood has just been absolutely nailing it. No pun <laughs> Seth- intended. Seth made like freaking like five tools to make the fucking yeah. as well. Like uh, he went Seth hard. unfortunately thought that this was a competition where he could win something. Um, it's just uh, well. a just a challenge to test yourself, but he has had fun, and that's the important thing. So yes, like we, Seth we admire practice. <laughs> we admire Seth's dedication to his practice. Yeah, uh, it's um, he made such a beautiful one too. With a beautifully drawn clip. The clip is harder mm. than people would think. But, he did a um, dual clip too. It was, it was a yeah. dual clip draft horse. And all of this uh, came from the discussion about turning. So I'm hoping people have been learning the turning by doing mm. this. So uh, we'll uh, when we come back with next week's episode, we'll have a new challenge for you. But um, you've still got until the end of the month to have a go at doing a horseshoe 
although we yeah. can do it at any time. I'd really like to know um, how many people who are listening to us are actually planning on enjoy or joining in on the 48-hour dagger challenge. So maybe comment on the Instagram post when it goes up, yes, letting absolutely. us know. And make sure we you definitely don't miss next week's episode uh, for that same yeah. reason. So, yes. Um, anyway, that wraps up this exceptionally long episode. Um, if you guys have questions uh, about blacksmithing or bladesmithing that you want to send into us, send it through on the social medias, slide into our DMs, or send us an email at ask.forgecast at gmail.com. Um, and if you're looking for us on the Instagrams or the Facebooks, we just go by the Forgecast. And where can they find you, Sam? You can find me at SamTownsBladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, the Kitchen Sink with the underscore Kitchen underscore Sink on Twi- on TikTok as well. <laughs> where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Redbubble, Patreon. Unfortunately. Yes. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed an extra long episode. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. <laughs> I know you. I'll be the same. <laughs> we'll uh, talk to you all in a week. Bye. Yeah. Oh!